Hello, everybody, and welcome to Speaking of the Arts. I am Mike Epstein, your host, and today's episode is a real treat. We are featuring the drummer, educator, entrepreneur, author, nonprofit organizer, band leader, producer, etc., etc. The list really goes on and on. The one, the only, Ulysses Owens Jr. I've always been a fan of Ulysses' drumming, but until I did my research for this interview, I really had no idea just how multifaceted he is. In fact, it was a challenge just to summarize his extensive biography for this introduction. Here are a few quick highlights. Ulysses has been named a rising star by Downbeat's critics poll for five years straight. He is a recipient of the 2013 ASCAP Plus Award, a gold medal winner of the 2014 Global Music Awards, a 2015 Jazz at Lincoln Center Swing Awards honoree, and a 2019 third runner-up in classic jazz category in the Modern Drummer Magazine Reader's Poll. Among many of Owens' accomplishments are his performances on the 2010 Grammy Award-winning Kurt Elling live album Dedicated to You and the 2012 Grammy Award-winning Christian McBride big band album The Good Feeling. His work with Joey Alexander, the Christian McBride Trio, and Gregory Porter have also received recognition by the Recording Academy, garnering Grammy nominations for the albums My Favorite Things, Countdown, Out Here, Live at the Village Vanguard, Nat King Cole, and Me. This is really just the tip of the iceberg with Ulysses, and our conversation turned out to be part one of two because there was just so much to cover. In today's episode, we talk about his approach to jazz education his new podcast series, From the Drummer's Perspective, his thoughts on entrepreneurship, and his new book, The Musician's Career Guide. Ulysses is the real deal, folks, and be sure to tune in again soon, as we will be posting part two of our conversation in the next week or so. Thanks for listening, and now please enjoy my conversation with Ulysses Owens Jr. Ladies and gentlemen, the man, the myth, the legend, the (laughs) artist, the educator, the author, the producer, the nonprofit organizer. I mean, it just goes on and on and on. Um, It's absolutely mind blowing the sheer creative output that you continue to produce. So Ulysses, thank you for being on Speaking of the Arts. Well, thank you for having me, man. It's my honor, so. Indeed, yeah. So yeah, lots to talk about and wanna be conscious of your time. By the way, congratulations on all your success with Soul Conversations. Oh, thank you. Listening to this album and I just, uh, it is, and, and maybe it's partly because of what I do in the industry and the live aspect of the industry, but I, anytime I listen to music that my immediate thought is, ah, I just want to be, I want to see this live. I want to experience yeah, this yeah. live yeah. is, um, is always a good thing. And, and for anybody who has not heard Ulysses' album, Soul Conversations, it's his big band recorded live at Dizzy's in 2019, the end of 2019. Yep. The energy on that album, on those tracks, is just unbelievable. So congratulations on that. Thank you, man. Thank you. Thank you. Indeed, indeed. Um, well, you know, it's fun kind of doing a little bit of research for our conversation because anytime you get to connect with someone that you really admire and find common ground, that's always exciting. And, I, you know, I mentioned I, my background is on the drummer, but obviously my career, I'm a, I'm a booking agent. But I thought I might start off with a simple question. Are you still a okay. pescatarian? <laughs> yes, um, and actually, I just re- I reduced my diet even more um, uh, to now just fish and veggies. Because um, my goal is uh, I'm 38 now; I'll be 39 in December, and then my goal by 40 is to potentially be fully vegan. Um, okay. Because I just think, like for for me, you know, I, obviously I've loved meat, and you know, I haven't eaten 
meat in a concentrated amount in six years. And I just like how my body felt. And as you know, you know, you get older, um, particularly when you start getting over 30 and then over 35 and your body starts changing. And I just like how my body feels without meat in it. And, uh, but for right now, I think because of travel and because of my intense schedule, it's still a little easier to have, you know, fish incorporated into it. So uh, yeah, but I'm, but I'm headed towards veganism. Okay. <laughs> I, I've been a pescatarian for almost exactly 20 years now. I made the switch my senior in high school. So yeah. what I, so I was reading an interview you did and, and somehow that came up and I, and I just yeah. was curious if that's still, but yeah. wow, veganism, you know, I, 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 I tried, I think I might've tried that for a minute and that's mm. not easy. That is not yeah. easy. Well, and that's why I'm, I'm very, I'm actually really disciplined and I use things like food to kind of heighten my discipline, nature, you know, like, so I'll start eliminating things out of my diet or out of my life to like make sure to like to kind of sort of hone that tool of discipline. So that was really what it was for food. It wasn't even like like a certain body goal. It was just like, okay, I feel like I was saying yes to too many things. So I was like, let me start eliminating what I'm saying yes to. And I'll start with food because food is probably, you know, next to spirituality and our family food is like the most important thing. So if I can say, you know, no to like a piece of steak, then I can say no to something else that may not be the right opportunity for me. You know, that is incredibly interesting. I've never heard someone <laughs> describe their diet choices on those terms. For me, for me, it was always just matter of, you know, straight up, I have a, I always had kind of a weak stomach. Yeah. yeah. So, I mean, okay, I can handle chicken, but I really had a right. tough time with, um, with red meat. Yeah, it was tough. Yeah. Right. But that is really interesting. So you, so you have been using this as a way to stay even more disciplined, although, Something tells me you're a pretty disciplined. Person. Well, you know, well, you know, I read this. Um, I'm a huge podcast book lover and all that. And um, I, 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 you know, I read all these things and and I'm always digesting information. And um, so much so that sometimes I forget where, like, where I got it from, but I remember what it is. And I remember this particular thing, whether it was a podcast or whatever. And the person was talking about activating your no. And it, it actually stemmed from a quote from Bill Gates, I think it was, who said, you know, really successful people say no more than they say yes. And when I heard it, it was at a point in my life where I was just really like overrun with a lot of things. Like <clears throat> a lot of what people are seeing now, I was kind of like in the incubation period of then. And so I was just like, yo, like I'm saying yes to like too much stuff. <laughs> and so it started with that. And then I heard the whole like, you need to activate your no. And I was like, well, what does that actually mean? And so then at the same time, I think I started reading or watching uh, The Game Changer, which is an incredible you know, documentary about um, Olympic athletes or people who, some are Olympic, but mainly athletes who switch to a vegan diet. And wow. what okay. I heard, of, it's on Netflix uh, or either Netflix or Amazon. But anyway, it's this study of everybody thought that to be a, a well-trained athlete, that you've got to eat, you know, steak and eggs in the morning, and then you've got to eat, you know, a big, you know, another steak and a salad and all this kind of stuff. And they were saying, um, sort of in research with cows and different animals, how all of their diet is, is consisted off of grains or, 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 you know, grass. And so anyway, so the whole like activating my no <clears throat> really started saying, okay, one, I need to be careful about what I'm eating. I'm getting older. Two, I need to be saying no more than I'm saying yes. Three, how do I marry all those together? And activating my no is, and so then I started looking at like, what are all the things I'm saying no to? So I looked at my diet at the time and I looked at myself in the mirror and I wasn't saying no to anything. And my body was a reflection of that. Um, it, you know, I had a you know really huge stomach, you know, my, my skin wasn't clear. Like I was, you know, drinking a lot every day. It was just, it was a lot. And I was like, I, my life looks 
like I'd say yes to everything. <laughs> I was tired. Okay. And so then I started saying, well, what would my life look like? And what will my body look like if I started saying no? And that's kind of where I'm at right now. Um, and, and, and actually I've sort of shifted into another degree of like bumping it up a notch because I think that I got comfortable with, okay, yeah, I'm saying no to these 30 things. I was like, now it's time to say no to 50 things, you know, so that I can be the best me because whatever I say yes to, I need to be the best version of myself, you know? Well, that offers me another opportunity to just say thank you for saying yes to this then. <laughs> oh yeah, bro. I'm, it's I'm lucky. crazy now. <laughs> yes, wow. Well, you know, one, okay, just from what you're saying right now, and I'm not at all surprised to find this out because obviously the first time you and I have had a chance to speak, yeah. You are a very intentional person, yeah. and and uh, one of my mentors likes to say our um, our eyes only see and our ears only hear what our brains are looking for. Wow, and the way you, yeah, and the way you get to that point is actually exactly through processes that you're describing right now, which is being very intentional, being very. Yeah. It could be as simple as starting your day with, you know, if I could do these three, four, five things, that would be great because. Right highlighting those uh, individual items centers your eyes and your ears and your brain around finding information to help you with those yeah. things. Um, absolutely, absolutely. So, yeah, so that is, um, I'm, that's really interesting, but I, I'm not at all surprised to hear that that is a, a uh, way in which you set out to be intentional. Cool, I'm just paying my breakfast bill, so let's keep going. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, absolutely. What was for breakfast? Um, I think I had, um, I had an omelet, so a veggie omelet. Okay, there you go. Sounds He's nice. Con trying to stay consistent. <laughs> All right. Well, I got to ask you about uh, from the drummer's perspective. Okay, great. Um, because that, that was really the catalyst that gave me, you know, partly some of the courage, but, but certainly the intentionality to reach out and try to connect with you. Okay. But, you know, before we talk specifically about what you're doing with that series, can you just briefly mention what is Open Studio? Because I sure. think a lot of musicians in the jazz world are actually, they have no idea what that is. Okay. And they should. Um, so yeah. what's Open Studio? Well, the net, well, I'll tell you this. The next person you should interview if you haven't already is Peter Martin. Okay. Um, because Peter Martin, and I, I'll try to keep the story really show, short, but I'm, Open Studio is something I'm so proud of because I was literally there with him from the very beginning. So I'll just take you back to a very, very quick story. When we were both on the road with Christian McBride. Um, Christian had a bunch of dates come through that were not economically as strong um, for his inside straight group, you know, but Christian being who he is, he's like, man, I want to, I want to get this music to the people. So he and his manager said, hey, man, why don't we just like, you know, put together like a small trio of cats or whatever, um, and take them out there. And so Peter at the time was doing a lot of work subbing with inside straight. Thank you. And, um, and I was doing some work as well. So they were like, hey, why don't y'all go with McBride? And the dates were in a place called uh, Slovakia. And um, so we started going there and we did like maybe three or four dates. And that was also where like one of the infamous, um, I think Cherokee or like one of those tracks came about from, from that. And so, um, so Peter started, he had this little like flip video camera and he would literally take it everywhere. And it was like one of those like USB powered things and I mean he would videotape like one time we were in Italy on tour um, with this very crazy promoter which you probably know who never has his stuff together and he broke down like at a gas station he busted a tire and Peter has the whole thing on video so it's oh, like man. literally it's like McBride, like all of us like getting out of the car and hot Naples Italy it's, it's hilarious so anyway so he started documenting this thing then he went from documenting like little concerts or funny events to 
in the middle, like like if we had two hours off before sound check, he'd be like, hey, um, I'm gonna just record two minutes of my piano or whatever. And he started posting it on Facebook. Well, then he start, it started going viral. And then next thing I know, he says, man, I think I'm gonna start this thing called Open Studio Network where I can basically upload lessons and whatever. Fast forward like a year, man, he decides to like build an office in, in uh, St. Louis, right across the Jazz Bistro, um, you know, and it just starts growing. And then he asked me to, like if I had any ideas about a course. And so I've created my first course called Finding Your Beat, um, which is essentially about four and a half hours worth of, you know, uh, material about jazz drum history and my concept and whatever. So we get we get through like all of that. Um, then all of a sudden, you know, the, the series started doing really well, but then I saw like this crazy growth, like where it went from, you know, being like kind of a niche thing to like, I think really COVID um, be, sort of helped in, an, you know, I hate to say it helped, but it helped yeah. because people were online more. And so then it went from being like a good company to like a great company. He got a spread in New York Times. And I mean, and it was, it's a different wow. company now. And so um, anyway, so he approached me and said, hey, Ulysses, I love what you're doing. Um, I had just released my brush book at the time. And he said, man, we really want you to do like another mini course. Um, and so figure out what that is. By the time we started talking, I released my second book, my entrepreneurship book. And he said, you know, what do you want to do? I said, man, to be honest, I'm not interested in teaching people press roles. Like I really want to teach people like something that they can hold on to. And it needs to be merged with entrepreneurship because to me, any musician today, which I'm sure we'll talk about this more at length, but like any musician today needs to juxtapose their career and their career ambitions and their technical ambitions with the idea of entrepreneurship because it is no longer gone are the days of just like playing really, really good music. Like now we've got to factor in playing this really good music and also like, how am I gonna make a living? And, and it's gonna more than likely be from something you create for yourself. Fast forward, um, we, I think Peter invited me to do a show with Edu Ribeiro, which is a great Brazilian drummer. And, um, and from that show, he says to me, um, hey, Edu's thinking about giving up, you know, the show has been a lot, you know, he loved it, but he's kind of ready to transition to something else. Would you ever wanna host like that show? And I said, well, you know, I love what Edu did. I was a guest on it and I follow some of his other episodes. I said, but if I'm gonna do it, I want it to be something completely different. And so we talked through it and they were like, well, what would it be? And I said, well, how about something called like from the drummer's perspective? I was like, I really would love to interview not only great drummers, but great artisans of the craft, but from the perspective of the drummer and not just like, all right, like roll call. Okay, hey, Mike, what if, you know, what are the five things you've done? But more of like, hey, Mike, when you, you know, started your first act, you know, as a booking agent, what is the thing you wish someone would have told you? You know what I mean? Sure. So I kind of put myself in the perspective of like, first of all, I'm a fan, but I put myself in the perspective of like that person who's sitting and trying to figure out what they want or how they want what they want. And my hope is that my interviews with these artists can sort of give them not necessarily a fast track, but at least give them like some advice that can maybe make their process a little smoother because I wish that I had that. I remember coming up in Jacksonville, Florida and no drummers were passing through. You know, I got to only see like maybe John Riley, maybe Peter Erskine, maybe one other drummer. And so if I could have sat in Jacksonville as a 16, 17 year old learning about jazz and go on the internet and watch an interview of somebody I admire, talk to someone else I admire um, and have a, 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 not a surface conversation but a very substantive one, I think it would have changed even my career. So that's what I wanted to do with the drummer's perspective. But again, it is rooted and grounded in the experience of Open Studio, which is this incredible resource for 
all musicians. And I also think that now Peter has opened up the conversation to people who don't want to play the Vanguard, but they still want to know what's happening at the Vanguard. So he's got this whole other database of people who are just eternal fans and want to be like learned fans as opposed to um, what we've cultivated in jazz as thus far, which is just being a fan, just like, you know, just patronize me, but don't, we don't really care if you know what we're doing. Um, and I think Peter is creating a more informed audience. And I, so, so I love Open Studio for all those reasons. Well, wow. So, you know, for anybody listening who hasn't checked out from the drummer's perspective, it, um, I, it is so amazing to me the, the, um, how you are getting these incredible musicians, drummers, to reveal things about their journey that you really cannot find in a magazine article. And quite frankly, wow. you probably aren't gonna find in another interview that, that they've done because wow, of the wow. perspective you're bringing to it. Like for wow. example, the stories I'm hearing Eric Harlan describe with Joe Henderson right. and right, right. what his relationship with Betty Carter and right. the stories I'm hearing Nate Smith talk about his right. relationship with Betty Carter and, right. and right. Dave Holland. And you know, what, this, you're doing such a service to this craft so thank you. Oh thank man, you. and I just hope um, I hope this is just the beginning. And I, obviously, you're a busy person. But I hope you can continue it. I hope you can do uh, not just drummers, but uh, other people as well in the industry, all musicians. Well, that was well. To be honest, that was actually the goal. Like, so when Peter first came to me, <laughs> um, I had a crazy list, man, because because you know I'm really. Um, well, I'll just say that I'm I'm inspired by everybody. And so I was just like, yo, like I had like maybe five drummers and the rest were like industry industry execs. I had booking agents on there. I had like, you know, um, funders. I had like venture capitalists. Like I, like I had a whole- Yeah, the whole ecosystem. Because my, because my, yeah, because my whole thing was, you know, which I still plan to do that, but maybe I have to use a different platform. But my whole goal was we need to be having conversations with these people, right? So maybe- you may not, Mike, well, no, I mean, you're a booking agent, so you can talk to anybody, but let's say some of your clients, <laughs> may, but, a bit, but I mean, but some of your clients may never get a chance to probably sit with a venture capitalist, but chances are you may. So if your client doesn't, but maybe I can, maybe I can show that conversation and there's going to be something out of that conversation that, um, that, that can help them. But with, you know, when we talked about open studio, again, they're very focused. And I love when people are focused and they're on brand and they were like, Ulysses, we can get to that at some point. But at the end of the day, like you are a drummer and you're a great jazz drummer and we love you. And, and we we know your audience is, is still kind of centered around that. So let's kind of start with that. And so I was like, all right, well, cool. Well, to your point, all right, then I'm going to get deep into it. I'm not going to just like ask, you know, everybody what ride symbols they use. Um, because even for me, even my friends have always said to me, they're like, damn, I feel like when I'm sitting down with you, I feel like I'm in an interview. So I think that 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 maybe that reason why it comes across or new stories comes across is because I actually like am interested in people. Like I'm interested in like what, you know, like what Nate, you know, or like what Betty Carter said to Nate that made him get the gig. Like I actually want to know that for my own knowledge, right. <laughs> you know, Absolutely. or I would love to know, you know, what, you know, what did, you know, like, I don't know if you got to see the Herlin interview, but I really wanted to know, like, how did Herlin evolve into being who he was? Because to me, he is one of the most original drummers that ever played with Winton. And so to hear the story about how he actually proceeded um, or, or came after Tame, and to hear right. that there was such a, a, a direct a direct sort of comparison between him and Tame, which and that he was actually- if you're just- Which you would never think, yeah. right. Right, and, and actually his evolution musically was because 
he wanted to not be tame. And Winton actually said to him, I've already had that experience, give me you. Yeah. Now, now we understand what we heard and experienced for those 20 some odd years. So I think there's always a backstory behind every great thing that we we experience in life. And so my goal with Drummer's Perspective is to, to find what that backstory is for, for the different guests I'm fortunate to have. Absolutely. Wow. Um, and as just a question, I mean, just so people who are listening can find it, sure. is it available as a standalone podcast or because I've been watching it on the Facebook feed, but can you no, find it? No, no, man. You got to go on YouTube. So basically what Sorry, happened- Sorry, that's what I meant. I said Facebook. I meant, I meant awesome. YouTube. I meant YouTube. Absolutely. So literally, um, Open Studio is incredible. Literally, the minute that I finish, it goes right up on YouTube, like literally not even five minutes later. So all of those separate interviews are on YouTube from the very first one with Lewis Nash up to the one I did last week with Jonathan Blake. And I'm really excited about the one tomorrow. It's going to be with Billy Drummond, who was my last teacher at Juilliard. Oh, and wow. um, so, so, and that was another thing I wanted to interview people that I had a deep connection with. So like, I've got Billy coming up with, uh, coming up tomorrow. Next week, I'm interviewing Nasheed Waits. Um, I remember spending time with Nasheed early on in my career. Terry Lynn is coming up. I remember she was so kind to me when I first started in the industry. So, you know, these are not just like these big names, like these are names, but these are also people that I have a very personal connection with. And I think that's why the interview is a little different because it isn't just like Joe Schmo interviewing Terry Lynn Carrington. It's like, oh, wow, Ulysses, I've, he's, I remember that kid. I've seen him come through the ranks, you know, or I've seen these people on the road and, and had dinner and breakfast with them. So it's, they feel they're talking to a friend, I think, versus um, someone who's maybe just a fan, you know, from afar. So. Absolutely. So, um, right. So, sorry, I, I've been watching it on YouTube, but is it available just audio only, like on Apple? Oh, Apple no. Podcasts? No. That, that, that it isn't, but I will actually shoot um, Rachel. Um, I'll shoot them a note and ask about that process because I don't think any of their stuff is available audio. I think everything for them okay. right now is all YouTube. But um, I, but yeah, you, you and I are already thinking the same way. Right, right. <laughs> so, I will yeah. ask them about that. Yeah, absolutely. All right, great. Well, um, I'm, I'm scanning through my notes here trying to figure out, like, how do I navigate so much to talk about in a little amount of time? Well, you know, you kind of, you kind of just laid the path for this conversation with okay. the theme of entrepreneurship. And, and so we can pick any number of things you are doing as an entrepreneur. For example, sure. the book you just released, The Musician's Career Guide. Uh, your the, the courses you've developed, be more than a drummer.com, which I love that title mm -hmm. for a website. Thank you, thank you. Um, <laughs> so maybe just you know, for people not who are not listening, um, you know, you're as an educator at Juilliard, entrepreneurship is a large focus of what you're doing there. Is that correct? Well, it's actually starting to become that. When I was first invited right. almost six years ago, Winton and Dr. Flag, Aaron Flag, wanted me to just be a small ensemble director, which basically means I have an ensemble that consists of about seven to 10 students. And those students um, perform, you know, six concerts, obviously before COVID, um, but about six concerts a year. And so it's my goal to really, basically I run it like a band, you know, I put together a band or, or I should say they put together a band for me. And then my job is to mentally, spiritually, and, you know, academically, philosophically, you know, and in every way condition them to get them to first think like a moving, like one moving organism, you know, and then through this moving organism or as we're moving organism, I should say, we then tackle these different goals, you know? And so um, that's what I've been doing. Now, when COVID happened, it completely rocked all of us, um, but that is my main goal. And I have a great time. I've had some, you know, I was just laughing like yesterday I was on Instagram and I was looking at Newport Jazz Festival 
and a bunch of guys that are playing were like my students, like Emmanuel Wilkins, wow. you know, was my student. Um, Gifton Gellin was my student. Um, you know, so it's really amazing to now be like, wow, am I that guy now that like I'm looking at jazz festival pamphlets and seeing my students have incredible careers like that's you know it's a really good feeling so so first out that's my role in addition to that from the moment I got to Juilliard I was very honest about my passion for entrepreneurship and I've been developing this work for many years before it became a book it was like a workbook before it was a workbook it was sort of a lot of notes and 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 um before it was that it was like lectures so I've been doing this work and and Juilliard has what's called the Alan D. Marks Entrepreneurship Center. And because they're aware of the work I've been doing, they would have me come in from day one for various like lunch and learn sessions. They'd have me come in uh, to the jazz, uh, jazz group and I'd talk to the student body. I've been doing that for probably three years. Um, and then now that the book is out, um, Barrett Hypes, who is one of the, the lead administrators in that division, wants me to now teach some courses. So I'm thinking, matter of fact, I just emailed with him the other day. I think in the spring, I will be teaching some kind of an entrepreneurship course. But then also in the fall, I think I'll be doing different like pop-ups. Um, but my ultimate goal, and I've had a very candid conversation with him at Juilliard and the administration, I think that we need to do a better job at Juilliard with regard to entrepreneurship. Um, and I think, you know, I'll just leave it at that. But he agreed. And so what Barrett and I are trying to do is we kind of have this overarching goal of like where we want to be in the next sort of three years in terms of the offerings that Juilliard can give our student body. Um, and then kind of from there, we're looking at like, all right, in addition to that, here's what we want to accomplish. So um, yeah, man, so that's kind of my involvement. So it's, it's, it's the entrepreneurial side is becoming more and more and more of a thing. Um, but the small ensemble director thing, that's sort of been the entree for, for six years. Well, yeah, so here's why I'm bringing it up, because I was fortunate, I, you know, I, I went to um, a pretty good music school. I went to Indiana University. Oh, so good, very good music school. Well, yeah, and I, but, you know, nothing disrespectful about my experience there at the time, but fact of the matter, zero, zero mention of the word entrepreneur, like not even, and this is, I graduated in 2006, so it's not that long ago, and, and just, by way of experience I've had professionally networking with people, speaking to other educators at various schools, my impression, um, if I'm trying to take an eagle eye of the country, this, you know, the this, this scope of where things are at with music education, there's really only a small handful of schools, you know, Juilliard, Berkeley, North Texas, yes. some of those well-known names that are consciously making an effort towards entrepreneurship for music. And you know, yeah. the reality, of course, is that a lot of schools they can't afford the resources. I get that, but um, no, it's, it's, it's be, I'm sorry to interrupt, Mike. It's no, BS. No. The the, the yeah. real and and I have a um, I'm gonna I'm gonna release something on. Is this public? Like, what? How do you release this on YouTube or something? Uh, we do it on YouTube. We have speakingthearts.com, and it's on okay, great. Apple iTunes. So so I'll release some some hot off the press information. I actually yeah. interviewed it in at Indiana. Okay. Um, I, they uh, had a position uh, about two years ago for the jazz drum professorship. Yes, and, uh, it was the, that's right. I was there when Steve was there. Yeah, so yeah. when Steve was getting ready to transition and it was between me and two other people, one is the person that got it. And, um, and I remember talking to them and saying, hey, like, because at this point my book had already been published, but it was, it, it, I think it was going to be out, well, excuse me, it had, I just got the deal and it was going to be out like maybe a year from then, whenever it was. But um, but I remember talking to them, meeting with their music business department, um, their entrepreneurship department and saying, listen, I know I'm coming in potentially as this guy for jazz, 
drums, but I was like, we need to remodel. Like we need to make this the focus. And I remember um, there being like one side of administration being really excited. Like, oh my God, this is like, where do we start? And the other side being like, Ugh, I don't know. And what I will say, the reason why I interrupted you is I'm gonna call BS and I have no problem doing it. I'm gonna call BS and it's not just directed at Indiana University, but I'll direct it at a lot of colleges. The problem is, is that when you start talking about entrepreneurship, people get nervous. You know why? Because people's egos get involved and they get threatened. Because when you start talking about entrepreneurship, you it's then a measuring contest, right? <laughs> and so, yes. so then it becomes so then it becomes, well, damn, like, is this professor really everything I thought that they were? Or is this department everything I thought? Because when you talk about entrepreneurship, entrepreneurship is a forward-moving thing, right? Like to be entrepreneurial is to be ever evolving, to be ever growing, to be ever, you know, revamping, restructuring. And most people aren't doing that. And right, so right. a lot of the the, the the university system and the the college, the academic system is a for-profit institution. And so to keep that going, there are people that get locked in that system and they stay in it for 30, 40 years, they get 10, you know, they get tenure or whatever. So, um, what I will say is it's not resources because who's more resourceful than a billion dollar university, right? Well the question well. is, the, the question is, or not the question, the issue is, if I start talking about entrepreneurship, it's going to reveal I'm probably not the best person for this job and that there's probably someone else um, that could be better at this job. And so where, where my book and where my efforts are coming is, I think it's incredibly selfish because you're now, like before we could get away with it, but now, now with COVID, we are literally sending students into a war zone and we're not even giving them, screw giving them a gun. We're not even like showing them that they're gonna need a weapon. <laughs> like That is essentially what we're doing. So I, I, the, the reason why I cut you off is because I think you were expressing uh, an ideology that, I, and it's not you, but but that a lot of people hide behind. But I'm telling you, the reason why we're not teaching entrepreneurship is not has nothing to do with resources. It has nothing to do with even with the students. It is a selfish, egotistical uh, thing that people are hiding. I hear you. I, uh, I that, that's always the challenge, just at a basic level with like jazz education. Does this instructor Absolutely. have the credentials to back up? Right. Okay. So if you've got that, you are a diamond in the rough because not many people are a complete musician, complete artist in the traditional right. sense, but the entrepreneurial sense. I mean, you are bringing right. to the table the you know exactly what it, I think is an ideal to you know. Right. So no, I get it. That makes perfect sense to me. Yeah, because a lot it's it's very antiquated, and those those people right. have been there a long time. They've been in yeah. the classroom a long time. Yeah, and 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 even like for me, quote unquote, being a diamond in the rough or being the perfect person for it, I think that I'm ideal for some scenarios because I'm ever evolving, right? Like the idea yeah. about entrepreneurship is this this thing where you're constantly changing, you're constantly growing. But the other part of it is entrepreneurship is the study of your own personal resources. And you know, jazz has a huge stigma of, you know, and I talk about this a lot in my book, where we don't want to tell stories, we don't want to tell you like. We, we don't want to remove the curtain of like, here's who's behind the curtain, you know, is we want to show up with our, you know, fancy hats on and our big careers. And we want to just act like it was something that magically happened. Whereas in you and I both know you're, I mean, you're a booking agent. You and I both know whether it's Maria Schneider or um, Pat Metheny or Ron Carter or Christian McBride or Winter Marsalis, we can go down the list of, of some of the top successful musicians right now in jazz. They are all business-minded people. Yes. All of them. Yes. 
yes. like, like all of them. Like they're not like, yes, they're great artists. Yes, Maria is, a, you know, she lives in the ethereal world of, you know, the, you know, the atonal and the whatever, but Maria is a businesswoman. <laughs> you yes. know, Pat Metheny is a, Pat Metheny is a business mo like mogul. Yep. And and what and to me, we're doing people a disservice and we're making them think that if you just become very, very talented, that all that other stuff will take care of itself. And it's not. And now you are actually getting to the point where there are more people that are actually less talented, but more business minded getting further along than those that are more talented and less business minded. So that's yeah. actually becoming the thing. So so to your point, I, I think um, we just don't want to be real about it, you know, but I'm hoping to keep pushing the conversation so that we can be. Right, right, absolutely. Well, you know, it's interesting too is that most people don't even know the definition of an entrepreneur and you just touched on it exactly, which is, and it was, so the word itself comes from a French economist, Jean-Baptiste ah, Say in the thank you. 1800s, which is Jean-Baptiste Say, how do you, you spell that? Anyway, he was an economist and he said an entrepreneur is someone who moves resources from a lower level to a higher level of productivity. And you were just talking about entrepreneurship as being a resource game, and it 100% is. How do you move resources from a lower level to a higher level of productivity? How do you create something from nothing? How do you create? How do you bring together different talents to create yeah. value? Right, all these things. Um, so, yeah. I, I'm trying to just segue towards some of the entrepreneurial endeavors you're doing. Yeah. You've taught. You mentioned sure. the book a few times, the musician's, yeah. the musician's career guide. What is yeah, it? Yeah. So yeah, the musician's career guide and sort of the subtext or subtitle is turning your talent into sustained success. Um, but you had a you had another question in addition to that. No, no, no. My my uh, my. I just wanted you to talk a little bit about it because when I, sure. I had a chance to read it, but one of the things yes. I saw in the bullet point summary of it that I yeah. thought is so important, also something that's never talked about in in um, music education, is how do you preserve your mental and spiritual energy? How do you oh, not yeah. get burnt out? How do you stay positive? Yeah. <laughs> it, yeah. it seems like you kind of touched on some of that. Well, my goal was that I wanted to create a book that addressed everything that is not being addressed, right? So the first thing I'll tell you is that the whole Musician's Career Guide idea was a journal that I started writing since I was in college. Um, when I was in college, I took two business classes. One was a classical one, and another one was for the jazz division. Both were, well, one was really helpful. The one that was for the jazz division, the one for classical was a complete waste um, because one, I'm a jazz musician and it was based on an antiquated model and the whole class was one semester, which is hideous to me. Um, you know, they'll keep you in ear training for four years, but won't, won't give you more than a, a semester of something that can teach you how to make money. Right. <laughs> um, but anyway, so I digress. But anyway, so it, the whole course was about a headshot, writing a cover letter and applying for orchestras. Okay. Um, and that particular year, the New York Times uh, issued an article that I think 50% of the orchestras in our country were closing. So I say all that to say, like I started journaling like all the stuff that I wanted to know. Then I graduated and moved back home to Jacksonville because I needed to figure some things out. Um, and then I started journaling there, like, okay, why, like, I wish someone would have taught me this or someone would have taught me that. Then when I started playing with Kurt Elling and moved back to New York, um, I would, you know, have these fireside chats with Kurt and his band and, you know, promoters. And, you know, I got really close with Marianne Topper. Like she and I were, she, you know, she would always call me kid. And I would, you know, we would, like, she would call me and give me the dates for his schedule. And then she'd be like, what else are you up to, honey? You know, tell me, you know, tell me what you're thinking about, you know, and if you ever want to be serious about a career, 
you know, you you can do it. You have a you have a leader capability. Like so, I so I would have these fireside chats with people like Marianne Topper, and then when I got in McBride's fan with him and his manager, and all, you know, and so I just started building this journal. And so when I looked up and I left McBride's band, um, after seven years with him, because I just I I, I knew that staying with McBride was going to be incredible, but I knew that if I stayed with him, I would never find out who I was because he's such a beautiful big personality but I knew there was something in me as well and so he was incredibly gracious he was like Ulysses I knew this day was going to come you got my support and you got my blessing so I had a meeting with Chamber Music America after I left and um, they were like so what are you up to now and and so I just mentioned a few different things I wanted to apply for and I said hey by the way I got this journal of notes that are about probably 15 years old and they're everything I wish I would have known about the music business and Gargi Shindy and Susan Dadian said, Ulysses, you need to start lecturing about that because <laughs> everybody knows, you know, you've had some of the best gigs in, in the industry and you're telling us that you documented all of that. And I said, yeah. And they said, you need to start developing that. So I started lecturing. And then as I would lecture around the country, then people would say, where's the book? And so I started the process and probably that process was about three to four years from, you know, I pitched the publisher that initially with the publisher that signed me, I pitched them initially and they turned me down. Um, then I went back to them because they still gave me great advice actually. When they turned me down, they basically said, your idea is really good, but it's not fine tuned. So um, they said, but we wish you the best. And they gave me a couple key things to do. Well, I went back to them just to say, thank you, you know, like a year and a half later for, for giving me that advice and letting them know that I now lectured, you know, halfway across the, the country. Um, I was now gonna write a workbook and I wanted to just thank them. And the guy that turned me down, he was no longer there, but the head, the head of the publishing company was like, hey, Ulysses, can you tell me about this idea? Like, <laughs> why, you know, like, why did we turn you down? Because I wasn't part of that decision. There you go. <laughs> and so I was like, so I was like oh. right. So I was like, well, actually I did da, 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 da. And he was like, um, do you have a book proposal? And I was like, well, uh, I was like, can I get back to you? So then I called my friend who has several books. I was like, what's a book proposal? <laughs> and um and he told me and uh so he connected me with my co-writer Arlen Gargoliano and Arlen had written tons of book proposals and so we we basically took the idea all these notes and we put it into a book proposal and uh and they decided to sign the book man and here we are so I think that what I'm proud about with this book to your point is that I deal with uh I think the three to four facets of what I think a student needs to know one is first the idea of mastery, right? Mastery is to me the the educational journey to understanding your craft. That is that is where we have to all start, you know. So that's your instructors, that's you, you know, having formal instruction, that's you going to college, whatever. Then we shift to that to, you know, okay, like where do you want to continue to further that talent? Then we shift to that to what is the music business, you know, what is the career desire and profile that you have. You know, and then let's get deeper into the music business. Then we shift from that into what is entrepreneurship, you know, and 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 then what is career development. And then after that, then we go to sort of the holistic side of now that we've dealt with sort of the theoretical and all of that, let's make sure that who we are physically, mentally, and spiritually is is holistically sound because that is the engine behind all of these other things. Right. And if you are are all over the place mentally or spiritually, then you won't even be able to get on stage because you you don't have the certain level of focus. So I and then the cool thing I'm excited about is that I was literally turning in my final manuscript in March of 2020, which was the height of like literally the beginning of the pandemic. 
So I said to the publisher, I was like, hey, can I write like an addendum? Like I want to write a, a section on COVID. And what I sort of, uh, a friend of mine coined this term pandemic entrepreneurship. And I wrote an article actually for Jazz Times about it. Um, so, so basically what I wanted to do was I added sort of that piece of pandemic entrepreneurship for musicians into the book. So I think it is also the only music business book that talks about the pandemic and entrepreneurship. So, so to your point, it, 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 it was just all these things kept coming together, but I wanted it to be a living, breathing tool that could be relevant at least for the next few years. And then I'm certain I'll probably have to update it and, you know, um, because the, the, the industry is changing so much, you know. Indeed, yeah. Well, Ulysses, you've long since paid your check <laughs> at, your, <laughs> at your breakfast table there. Um, so I, I don't want to keep you, maybe just to close sure. out. Um, sure. And, you know, I have I have seven more topics. I'd, maybe we okay. should do a part two if you're up for it. Please, you know, and I'm going to say that. Um, so let's do, the, um, I'll, I'll answer one more question, but I'm actually back in town. I'm in Jacksonville, not next week, but the week after. So I guess the week of the 17th. Okay. Um, let's set up a part two and we can do it from my studio. And I, I would love to finish out those questions for you because I, I, I like talking to you, but I also think that we can have a, we have a nice banter that I think could be great to unveil some things for your audience. So let's just do a part two. Yes. You know? Absolutely. Let's just call it right yeah. there. And uh, okay. everybody listening, you know, you've just had the pleasure of listening to Ulysses Owens Jr. Um, I've learned so much in our time. And as we just said, there's going to be a part two. So to be yes. continued. Yes. And Mike, just shoot me an email today and let's pick a date, you know, and let's just get it on the books, man. We'll make it happen. Let's do it. All right. Enjoy your you. uh, residency. And I can't wait to hear what comes with that. Thanks, brother. Take care, man. All right, take care. Bye. Bye.